Hello and welcome to Sonnet Cast, William Shakespeare's sonnets recited, revealed and relived. I am Sebastian Michael and this is Sonnet 28. How can I then return in happy plight that am debarred the benefit of rest? When day's oppression is not eased by night, but day by night and night by day oppressed. And each, though enemies to either's reign, do in consent shake hands to torture me, the one by toil, the other to complain how far I toil, still farther off from thee. I tell the day to please him, thou art bright, and dost him grace when clouds do blot the heaven. So flatteried the swart complexioned night when sparkling stars twy not, thou gildst the eve. But day doth daily draw my sorrows longer, and night doth nightly make grief's length seem stronger. Sonnet 28 continues on from Sonnet 27 and develops the thought further elaborating on the ways day and night appeared to conspire to make William Shakespeare's struggling life a misery as he travels away from his young lover. While it thus does not tell us anything that is, in that sense, new, it produces a layered internal dialogue that gives us a great sense of the poet's state of mind and disposition of heart. And of course, these two sonnets belonging together, we have to hear them together, back to back, and we will. But before we do so, let's examine what does Sonnet 28 actually mean? How can I then return in happy plight that am debarred the benefit of rest? The sonnet continues from Sonnet 27 and asks, Everything said there, with my body being worn out during the day and my mind kept reeling during the night, how can I then, in that case or in that situation, return from my bed and start a new day in a happy disposition when I am so denied the benefit of rest? Plight here has a meaning of state or condition quite generally rather than, as we would use it today, one of a dangerous or difficult situation, although the juxtaposition of happy with plight, knowing Shakespeare, may well be deliberate. When day's oppression is not eased by night, but day by night and night by day oppressed, when it is the case that the strains that are put on me during the day are not eased by a good night's sleep, but, in fact, I am further weighed down by the agitation of my mind during the night, and then the next day work and travel continues, adding further to my weariness. The day is oppressed by night because night does not offer any relief for the exertions of the daytime, and night is oppressed by day because the day, of course, similarly does not offer any respite from the restlessness of the night. And each, though enemies to either's reign, do in consent shake hands to torture me, 
and although day and night are opposites which cannot coexist at the same time but have to fight each other for dominance one following the other in an eternal cycle they shake hands in agreement on a pact to torture me the one by toil the other to complain how far i toil still farther off from thee one of them day tortures me with the toil for which here again clearly read exhausting travel as much as the work that goes with the travel or that the travel is for the other night tortures me by giving me time to reflect and therefore bemoan or complain to myself about how far i travel from you and the longer this goes on the further away i find myself from you I tell the day to please him, thou art bright, and dost him grace, when cloud do blot the heaven. Now this third quatrain offers two quite categorically different interpretations. What is clear is that the day here and then in the following two lines the night are both personified and addressed by me, the poet, as if they were people. Most editors assume that I, the poet, talk first today and then tonight about the young man if that is the case then here i am saying to the day you my young lover are metaphorically bright on account of your beauty and you with your beauty grace the day even when the sun isn't shining but clouds are in the sky and i do this to please the day meaning by extension to appease the day and make it more pleasant and thus more bearable to me but to the same effect to please the day and thus make it more bearable to me the line can also be read as a direct speech addressing day itself i say to the day you the day are bright and you do him my lover grace meaning you with your beauty remind me of him and honor him and i say this to you even when you the day are not in fact bright but are clouded over with bad weather some editors go as far as suggesting that the to please him belongs to what you my lover do reading the line as i tell the day that you in order to please him the day are bright and do him grace even when clouds darken the sky and this is also one of very few possibly the only instance certainly that i'm aware of so far where we have a choice whether to pronounce heaven in two syllables or in one we simply have to do the same then with the even that rhymes with it but we can read these two lines as either with 11 syllables that would therefore go and dust him grace when clouds do blot the heaven so flatter i the swart complexioned knight ten syllables when sparkling stars why not thou gilds the even eleven syllables or we can read these lines and dust him grace when clouds do blot the hen so flatter i the swart complexioned knight when sparkling stars why not thou gilds the e the choice is really ours which now takes us on to the next line of course so flatter i the swart complexioned knight when sparkling stars twire not thou gilds the even 
In the same way, I also flattered the black knight, swart complexioned means having a black complexion, that you gild and therefore beautify and grace the evening, even when there are no stars in the sky. And similarly, the line can be read in two ways, either as I, the poet, saying to the knight, you, my lover, make the evening golden, even when there are no stars in the sky, because the night sky is overcast, or as I, the poet, saying to the knight, you, the knight, make the evening golden for me, even when there are no stars in the sky. For example, because I think of my beautiful young man. What slightly favours the latter, though it has to be said less common interpretation, the one where I, the poet, talk to first day and then night, addressing them directly, are the two qualifying statements to please him for the day and flatter for the night. It would seem to be a more obvious way of flattering someone to compliment them directly rather than by saying to them that somebody else is gilding them. But this is far from conclusive. And in Sonnet 27, which this clearly and unmistakably follows on from, I compared the young man to a jewel that can make the dark night beautiful. And a few sonnets back, in Sonnet 20, I told the young man that he is gilding the object whereupon his eye gazes, both of which would really favour the former interpretation, whereby I tell the night and the day that you gild the night and you please the day by making it bright. Drawing a firm conclusion, therefore, is virtually impossible. Here, as elsewhere, we may simply have to entertain the possibility that Shakespeare is aware of the double meaning and delights in his own dexterity to give us a deliberately ambiguous quatrain. The sense that we get from it largely remains the same. I, the poet, try to put on a brave face and make my day and my night bearable by reminding myself of how beautiful you are. But day doth daily draw my sorrows longer, but every day draws out my sorrow for being away from you, and also, as I said just a little earlier, every day takes me geographically further away from you, and thus puts a greater distance and therefore a longer road home between us. And night doth nightly make grief's length seem stronger, and every night deepens my grief for being away from you. It is tempting here to amend the quarter's edition length for strength and make the line read, and night doth nightly make grief's strength seem stronger, which would yield a quite satisfying alliteration there. But even if that should appeal, it isn't strictly necessary for the line to make sense. And as some editors point out, the focus on both distance and duration length offers is possibly more elegant than reinforcing strength with stronger. In any case, though, my approach is to go by the words that we have. And while we must allow for the possibility of some mistakes having crept in, and in some cases these are so obvious that, as we have already seen, they have to be amended, doing so absolutely needs to be a last resort 
for the most part and wherever possible, the assumption surely has to be that Shakespeare knew what he was doing and that we do not need to improve very much in inverted commas on his writing. So now then, to fully get this sense of absence, longing and growing unease, of lingering despair, let us take these two poems together as they should be taken. Sonnets 27 and 28 Weary with toil, I haste me to my bed, the dear repose for limbs with travel tired, but then begins a journey in my head to work my mind when body's works expired. For then my thoughts, from far where I abide, intend a zealous pilgrimage to thee, and keep my drooping eyelids open wide, looking on darkness which the blind do see. Save that my soul's imaginary sight presents thy shadow to my sightless view, which, like a jewel hung in ghastly night, makes black night beauteous and her old face new. Lo, thus by day my limbs, by night my mind, for thee and for myself no quiet find. How can I then return in happy plight that am debarred the benefit of rest, when day's oppression is not eased by night, but day by night and night by day oppressed, and each, though enemies to either's reign, do in consent shake hands to torture me, the one by toil, the other to complain how far I toil, still farther off from thee. I tell the day to please him, thou art bright, and dost him grace, when clouds do blot the heaven. So flatter I the swart complexioned night, when sparkling stars twire not, thou gild the even. But day doth daily draw my sorrows longer, and night doth nightly make grief's length seem strong. It could be argued, perhaps, that these two sonnets are among the least spectacular ones we have met so far. And certainly there is a subdued weariness, yes, but also an underlying anguish that seems to seep through. Only four lines in Sonnet 27 concern themselves with the young man and there make a gentle, understated simile with a jewel that endows a dark and gloomy night with new beauty. And it is the same sense of light that is then picked up in Sonnet 28 where the melancholy grey of a cloudy day and the pervasive umbra of a starless night are lifted somewhat, but only somewhat, by being able to talk about the love who is left behind. And here, as we have seen, it isn't even entirely clear who is doing what to whom. Am I trying to please the day and flattering the night by telling them things they are not? namely bright and gilding the evening, and you, the young man who is not here with me, are really principally the reason for my need to attempt to tear myself up in this way? Or am I doing the same, trying to please the day and flatter the night, by talking about you? 
Maybe the greatest insight we glean from these two sonnets then is not so much in the words and their direct or indirect meaning, but in this ambiguity and the lacklustre spirit they convey. If you have ever been tired, worn out, underpowered, away from home, and all the while missing someone badly, the tone and atmosphere of sonnets 27 and 28, but particularly of sonnet 28, will be all too familiar. It is what in today's language we, perhaps a bit lazily and as an at times inappropriate shorthand, call being depressed. Certainly, these two poems do not burst with any joy or energy or drive or even, for that matter, great emotional gushing of love. They are subdued, somewhat diffused, so as not to say muddled, and they cling on to the thought and the image of the young man but barely seem to succeed. They are written in a frame of mind that is utterly low. Hearing these sonnets, we want to give our will a big hug and say, chin up, this too shall pass. And it does, but not before William Shakespeare finds fresh form and funnels his despair into one of the most in spite of himself, the most triumphant compositions in the entire canon, Sonnet 29. And so I hope you will join me again next time here on Sonnetcast as we recite, reveal and relive the sonnets of William Shakespeare. Mm -hmm.